I'm so grateful to God today. He's given us another day to live, hasn't he? He's given us a day to gather with his people and worship. I think about the generations and I can't help but to have my heart warmed when I think about my own grandchildren and I think about the generations and knowing one day my wife and I, we won't be here, but my grandkids will be living here on this planet unless Jesus comes back, unless he takes one of them to be home with him in some shape or fashion. I think about the burden, the responsibility that God has given each of my grandchildren's parents and grandparents to pass the faith down. How will they know unless we tell them? This morning, we have a number of people with us in the sanctuary that are 18 and under. Would you all just stand? If you're 18 and under... Steve Burns, that doesn't include you. Keep your seat. 18 and under. Just look at all these students and children. Thank you, thank you. Now all of you adults here, your parents, your your spiritual parents to these kids. Now, their parents are the primary disciple-makers biologically, but, but your spiritual parents, those of us who have a little bit more gray or a little less hair, we're, we're grandparents to these kids, spiritual grandparents. If you don't know any of the names of these kids, I hope over these next weeks you're going to get to know them and you're going to invest in them because you know like I do, there's only so many days the Lord gives us here on earth and we're going to, we're going to leave something behind and it's not enough just to leave a building behind church. It's not enough just to leave a few traditions behind church. We've got to leave the gospel behind We've got to leave a love for, the, for God and His Word behind. Someone said to me, I was expressing, I hope that the church doesn't implode because I'm its leader. And I was saying to them, I, I feel so burdened that the church would be united and be one that to bring the church into one service, there are so many dynamics to that and and one of my good friends, James, he, he said, well, we're supposed to be an intergenerational church, right? Well, how's that going to happen if you don't all get in the same room? <laughs> so thank you, church. I know it's a lot to adjust. Another good friend said, I love your aircraft carrier illustration of the church bringing the people together to refuel and send them out, but unless the aircraft carrier is steady, there's no place to land. I said, you're right. You're right. We want to get into a new rhythm, be steady, and move forward for the glory of God. I recommend in your household that you have weekly family meetings. In my house, we called those family night. Every Friday night was family night, and we would pull out the Word of God, we would read it, we would pray, and we would sing. 
and we would have family night. And I hope that as you leave today, you'll pick up one of these family devotional guides so that you and your house, every week you will have a family meeting. It's good for you. It's good for your family. It's good to honor God together and pass the the gospel down to the next generation. But just like your household needs a, a weekly meeting, we as God's people need a weekly meeting where we all gather together. Just like at your house, God's house. I know there are other times that we meet. I was so blessed and I'm just taking a lot of pastoral privilege this morning, so I've got to 12 o'clock, something like that. I mean, that's, isn't that what we normally get out at 12? I was walking around on Wednesday night, and I, I went down to the children's area, and I saw all kind of families. I saw kids signing up. I saw different groups. They were excited. They were, there, there was a lot of energy. There was music and there was Bible study. I walked up and went into the chapel and saw a room full of students and leaders and then walked back into the CLC and it was packed out of adults who were coming to better understand how to study and how to read the Word of God. I, I was so blessed family by our family on Wednesday night and and even more today I'm blessed that you're here today and we get to have our family meeting we come together to worship God this is our our purpose we come to glorify him and worship him but like Hebrews 10 says we come together so that we can encourage one another too and all the more as we see the day approaching how long do we have here on earth I, I, I don't know I don't know, but First John is going to help us know how to spend the days that the Lord's given us. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of First John. Today we begin a new study. That's why I mentioned the family devotional guide. There are men's and women's study guides in the lobby as well. I hope you'll pick one up because we'll meet together tonight at 5, all the men in the worship center, all the ladies in the CLC, and we'll begin this study. First John chapter 1, let's stand and let's read together. The entire chapter, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We know it's true. We believe it. You've used it to shape us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. And so this morning, as we begin this study in this book of the Bible, we know that you inspired these words. These are your very thoughts that you gave John to write down for your people in the first century and in this century. We know it's alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you use it today to cut deep in our hearts that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness so that we can do every good work that you put us here on earth to do. Lord, we're your servants. We're your children. Speak. We're listening. Do in us what pleases you and allow us to pass the gospel down to the next generation who will pass it down to the next generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When sin entered into the world, so did death. God had told Adam that from the beginning. When you eat of this fruit, you will die. Sin entered into the world and so did death. The wages of sin, the result, the consequences of sin is death. Twenty years ago, yesterday... Many people woke up just like they did any other morning. They got up, they had breakfast. Some of them were running late. Some of them hit a snooze button. Some of them, they, they took their showers. They got dressed. They were in their cars. They were on buses. They were going to school. They were going to work. They were taking off in an airplane. Not knowing what was ahead of them on that day, September 11. 2001, 20 years ago, 2,996 people died. Almost 3,000 people. It was a horrible day. Just yesterday I was reminded again afresh and anew of the rawness of what that day was like. And especially as I began to read through Todd Beamer's conversation with the operator, with the emergency workers, and began to see a man who was understanding that unless he and his companions did something on that airplane, it was most likely going to head toward the White House or the Capitol building. And they determined they were going to give up their lives on that day and fight the terrorist. And of course, we hear those words just ringing from that operator, from Todd's voice, from that phone conversation, let's roll. Just last year, in 2020, 655,000 people died due to heart disease. I mean, think of these numbers of people who are dying. Just last year, almost 600,000 people died of cancer. 345,000 died to COVID-related issues. 
200,000 died due to accidental injuries. I'm telling you, death is sure. It's going to come to all of us. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Every person here one day is going to die. Even if Jesus comes back, there's a, a, there's a, a form of death that every person will experience. Even if he comes back, every person here is going to experience death. And then we're going to stand before God. We're still... Worse still than death is that not everybody's going to go to heaven. I wish this morning I could stand up in here and say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, what you think. Everybody's going to be okay when the end comes. When your life is over, God's just going to open up the doors and he's going to just let everybody in. But that's not what God's told us. That's not in keeping even with the very nature of God. The nature of God is that He is holy. He is perfect. He is light. And therefore sin must be punished. The nature of God is also that He's merciful and gracious and He's provided a way so that we could be forgiven. And those who take that route, who go that way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those who take that route of Jesus Christ, they go to heaven. Those who don't, they go to a place that the Bible calls hell. We're all going to spend eternity in one of those two places, heaven or hell. Can you know for certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die? It's a pretty big question for us this morning. It's so big that the Bible has a whole book called 1 John to help us to wrestle with that. And for 10 weeks, we're going to wrestle with that question. Can you know for certain you will go to heaven when you die. The key text in 1 John is in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And we're going to memorize this as a church family. I, I want to encourage you in your houses to memorize this. We're going to use it sort of like a catechism, like we did with some of our passages in 1 Timothy. But I want us to take this key text, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And I've tried to make this easy for us. I'm, I'm the pastor or one of the pastors. And so on this Sunday, I'm going to be in that role of pastor. The congregation is you, for those of you who are new. That's you. And so I'm going to start this out, and then you as a congregation, you join me, because I think it answers our question, and it tells us what this book is about. So, and this is the testimony. Whoever has the Son has life. We've got some work to do. But we've got 10 weeks. We'll get it. I, I think we need to start over. Okay, we can, and it's all up there. Thank you. And this is the testimony. Whoever has the Son has life. 
Whoever has the Son has life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You, you just answered the question, didn't you? That you may know that you have eternal life. This is not a threatening letter. This is not a letter to make everybody in this room say, Man, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm saved. It's, it's not a, a letter to make you doubt your salvation, but it is a letter to make you examine your salvation. Are you really saved? It's meant to be a book of assurance. It's meant to be an encouraging book for those who are in the faith. It's a great help to us. It's a letter for those in the faith, but I would say to you it's also a great help for those outside the faith because this will help you know for sure not only that you're in the faith but whether or not you might be outside the faith listen to two great theologians i would call them mentors of mine not because i knew them personally but because i read their books j.i packer in his book classic knowing god if you haven't read it you need to read it listen to what he said about this idea our heavenly father intends his children to know his love for them and their own security in his family. Being prone to self-deception, we do well to test our assurance by applying the doctrinal and ethical criteria which 1 John, 1 John, provides for this very purpose. J.C. Ryle, another great man of God. He wrote a book called Holiness. I think it's one of those books that John MacArthur talks about had one of the most significant impacts on his life. It's another great classic. Uh, We're going to follow some of J.C. Ryle's teaching on this. But listen to what he said. I content myself with saying that where there is the most holiness, there is generally the most assurance. We're going to see that a couple of times in this book. The Word of God appears to me to teach distinctly that a believer may arrive at an assured confidence with regard to his own salvation. Think of an adopted child, which if you're in the faith, you're an adopted child. You did not belong in the family of God. You were enemies with God. And when God's Spirit began to convict you and draw you to Himself, and you surrendered your life to him, he adopted you. Nothing you deserved, nothing you earned. It was all a gracious act of God. You were adopted into his family. And sometimes when children are adopted into a family, they're not quite sure if these people are really real. Do they really love me? Are they going to keep me? Can you put yourself... Some of you have been adopted. Some of you have adopted. Thank God for adoption. But just think of what a child thinks. But as that child grows and matures, and as they sense the security of a home and a love, that assurance, I, I am this man's son or daughter. I am this woman's son or daughter. I am in this family. J.C. Riles goes on to say this, Assurance, after all, is no more than a full-grown faith. Not that we're earning salvation by works. Even the the 
security of our salvation by works, but that we're growing deeper in the gospel and a relationship with God. That's what assurance is. As we grow, we begin to learn more about who God is, what He expects, and we begin to obey, and we begin to love Him more and receive His love in greater degrees. And so assurance, I, I love that, is no more than a full-grown faith. Some of you have been doubting your salvation in part because you haven't been growing in your faith. Some of you have genuinely placed your faith in Christ and you've been babes in Christ. Maybe there's been no discipleship that's taken place. Ryle goes on to say, all God's children have faith. If you're in the family of God, you have to have faith. But not all have assurance. I think this ought never to be forgotten. If you're in the family of God, you're, you're there by faith, by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But even those who are in the family of God oftentimes lack assurance. And John wrote this book to help these people to live in the security of their salvation, to have assurance. And for some who read it, they, they had to no doubt come to terms with the fact they were not in the family of God and that something needed to change. Let's compare 1 John with the other works of John. John wrote uh, a couple of other books. You know, we see these letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This is one part of the New Testament. Now, remember the Bible's divided up in two parts. Kurt's talking about understanding the Bible on Wednesday nights. I hope you'll come and participate. It's a great study. But the Old Testament promises Christ. You know, we find we find creation and fall, and then we see the story of redemption that Kurt's really bringing out in a, in a strong way throughout the Old Testament because it's the promise of Christ's coming, the Old Testament. The New Testament is the delivery. Christ comes. So we have the Bible in, in two big parts, Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament, I like to make reference to five categories of books in the, in the New Testament. And there are five in the Old, but we have Gospels, this record of Jesus' coming, the event of His coming, four perspectives in total agreement and harmony. Then we have Acts, this history of the church, how they began to live out what, God, what Jesus had given them to do and how they passed the faith they had received to the churches and started churches. And so we have the Gospels, Acts. Then we have Paul's letters, and the general letters, two different kinds of letters. First John is a general letter, but that's the explanation of the gospel. The event, the gospels, the experience of the gospel, Acts, the explanation of the gospel, Paul's letters, and then the general letters, and then Revelation, the expectation of Christ's second coming prophecy, what's to come in the future. Now, John wrote in three of these categories. The gospel of John, it's about the past now. John, if you'll remember, he gave us, I, I love this about John's writing. I, I think it's the mark of, a, of um, a good book today is that it will tell you why this author is writing. In John chapter 20, remember what John said when he wrote the gospel? John 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is this apologetic. It's a record of Jesus' coming here on earth, his perfect life, the I am statements. Remember, 
seven I am statements, he was equating himself with the Father and the Spirit. He's as much God, Jesus is, as the Father and the Spirit. God is one, and yet he exists eternally in three persons. And what we have in John is he's, he's showing Jesus is who he said he was. The I am statement, the seven miracles that are addressed in John. John is trying to say, you can be confident when you place your faith in Jesus. He is God, and you can believe everything that he said. You can follow him with confidence. And so John is writing about the past. He's giving us a record. You can believe on him. John, when he wrote Revelation, and some say that was next. It wasn't 1 John. 1 John was the third of these three. But Regardless of the order, Revelation is about the future. It instructs us to be ready for him. We can go back and we can read. I mean, just turn over a couple of books from 1 John. In Revelation chapter 1, in verse 11. Write what you see in a book, Jesus told John, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. You see, God was preparing these churches for what was ahead of them. Be ready for his return. And even the book closes out with that. But then you come to 1 John, and it's a book about the present. Based on what Jesus has done for us through the cross and the resurrection, based on the fact that he's coming back one day, What should you do right now? What does the Christian life really look like? When someone becomes a follower of Christ, this is one of the first places I take them to the letter of 1 John because it gives them the picture. It shows them what a Christ follower looks like. These tests are given. And so when you come back to 1 John chapter 1, Let's look, first of all, at the assurance of eternal life. This is the introduction to the book, these first four verses in chapter 1. And you're going to see some relationship to Genesis 1 and John 1. But in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning. Interestingly, that's how John started his gospel as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As far back as we know time, Jesus, he has always been with the Father. He is eternal. And we get that reference even back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a a correlation here. He's taking us back. Because in the beginning, there was this perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. They walked with God. They knew God. They enjoyed God. They loved God. It was was wonderful living in the presence of God 24-7. Then sin entered in and disrupted that perfection, that fellowship, that relationship. And so what we're getting in the Gospel of John in this letter of 1 John is God's work of redemption, God's work of restoration to give us that kind of relationship again. We could not earn it. We we were sinners, all of us. And so God did something on our behalf. That which was from the beginning, notice how John talks about this. Which we've heard, we've seen, we've looked at We've looked upon and we've touched with our own hands. This is a testimony from 
from John himself, one of the apostles, one of the twelve, who saw Jesus, who laid eyes on him, who heard his teachings, who touched him, who knew that he was real. He was not just some apparition or spirit or ghost. He was a real human. God actually left heaven, God the Son, and took on human flesh, not losing his deity, but adding on humanity to be the perfect God-man, the one and only sacrifice that would pay for the sin of people to make atonement the lamb of God without spot or without blemish and John's given us a testimony this is what changed the apostles lives this is why they were willing to give up their lives that's why each of them were willing to die it was because they knew this They had seen him. They had touched him. They had heard him. It was real for them. And we have this apostolic witness that continues on, but it changed their lives. And when you really begin to see Jesus for who he is, that's when conversion takes place. That's when your life is changed. You cannot place your faith in Jesus without knowing accurately who Jesus is. You've got to know that he is God Fully God, fully man, he came, he took on human flesh, he was born of a virgin, he he lived a sinless life, therefore qualifying as God and man to be the one atoning sacrifice, propitiation. He appeased the wrath of God. He is that one offering that would suffice for our sins, pay for our sins. And then he rose from the dead three days after he died. And without that knowledge, with that understanding, we cannot be saved. You have to know what you're placing your faith in, or more accurately, who you're placing your faith in. And so John, when he writes this in verse 2, he says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. To testify. That's the testimony. I, John was not only one of the twelve, but he was one of the three that we call the inner circle, who spent special time with Jesus, who went into certain places when he was healing, or who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw some things that maybe nobody else saw other than those three in the inner circle. He saw plenty of the twelve. He saw plenty that the crowd heard and saw. But he said, I John had this credibility that was, that's huge for us. And it's, it's a testimony. But it's more than just a testimony. It's also a proclamation. Notice what else he says about getting this message out. He not only testified to it, but he proclaimed to you the eternal life. We're, we're talking about living with God forever. That there's life beyond this earthly, temporal life. We're talking about eternal life. And in verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So it's this proclamation that's more out of a commission from God. Once you've experienced conversion, you have to tell others about what you've experienced. Your life changed. Why, Why are you living differently? Why are you doing this? Why are you not doing that? Why are you spending your time here? Why is this important to you? Now we're proclaiming, we're telling, we're testifying because of our conversion, what God has done for us. But we're proclaiming out of obedience. He's called us to go and make disciples. But John had another step that was important for him. 
Before I hit that, let me finish out verse 3. Look back again there. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, this is going back to the testimony to some extent, but John knew what it was like to be made right with God. He knew what it was like to live apart from God, and he knew what it was like, what it was like to live with God again, to be restored, to have fellowship with him. That's why he was put here on earth, and he remembered what it was like to live outside of that fellowship, outside of knowing God and enjoying God and glorifying God. And he wanted them to enjoy what he had enjoyed. He's, he's saying to them, he is proclaiming this message so that they too may have fellowship with us. It wasn't just that John wanted to be good friends with these people. He wanted them to enjoy the depth of being made right with God and walking with God like he experienced. And that's what he says. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 4, And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Nothing more joyful than watching others come to faith after you've come to faith. You know, there are parents here today who would give their right arm. I believe there are parents here today who would give their lives to see their kids come to faith in Christ. Because they know what it's like to have that kind of peace in their lives of eternity. They know what it's like to know that if they died tonight, they'd go to heaven and they want that son, that same thing for their children, whether they're young or whether they're adults. And, and I, I, I know there are grandparents who would do the same thing because you know what it's like to walk with God and know God. You know what it's like to have that confidence that if something does happen to me, I know where I'm going. You, you know what that's like and you want it not only for your kids, but you want it for your grandkids. And I believe that's why some of you are here today. Even though we're, we're at a different time and we're in a different way, it's because you understand, even as you look around this room, some of you young people see the beauty of senior adults and how important they are in the life of the church. And some of you senior adults, you see these kids and these students and you see the beauty of, of passing the faith down. And so John, what did he do? Well, he, he wrote these things. He, he's writing. That's how God has made himself known through writing. He made himself known through the Son. And this book is a, a book about the Son. And so John is writing, just like Paul wrote Timothy as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. John wrote. And so we, we call this writing process canonization, where God inspired the apostles, gave them this message. They wrote it down. And it's been passed down through the ages, through hundreds of years, a couple of thousand years, this New Testament that we now have. It's the rule of faith. It is what God has given us to know Him and what He's like and how we should live our lives. In John, when he wrote his gospel, do you remember what he said to the disciple, to the, uh, what Jesus said to the disciples about what He would Tell them what he would teach them after he was gone. In John, uh, John 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, that's the New Testament. The Holy Spirit inspired these words down. It's the apostolic witness. Even John in chapter 17, this is what he said as he prayed for those 
who would uh, follow and for the apostles themselves, John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you've given me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You see, it's all laid out in the plan of God. This book is not just men's ideas. It's not just people who dreamed up a a set of thoughts and thought, you know, we believe we can deceive a lot of people and we can have a lot of followers. But these men were willing to die because they believed what they were writing down. And people through the Ages have been willing to die because they believe this is the word of God. Some burned to the stake. Some killed even as recently as this day because they're following Christ and they're holding house churches and they have Bibles that they're trying to hide from people because they'll know they'll be killed for the faith. This book is the word of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and the apostles and the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It's what Jesus had given them, what the Spirit inspired them with, and they wrote it down. God affirmed the miraculous nature of the Scriptures through the miracles of the apostles. They're written down. They did signs and wonders. It authenticated this message. It was the mark of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's an important passage as we think about who the apostles were and how we know that they were led by God and even what they wrote was true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. See, God was authenticating his message through his son as he did these great miracles. He was also authenticating this book, his word about his son through the apostles, through the miracles and the signs that they performed as well through the book of Acts. So much so that when Paul wrote about the scriptures and the apostles' testimony and the apostles' doctrine in Ephesians, we get a couple of really important passages that note this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Say, Rodney, you're spending a lot of time on this. If you watch the History Channel, if you watch the Science Channel, if you go to any public school or university, you're rarely going to find anybody who says this is the Word of God. Students, this is the Word of God. Believe it. Believe it. God, He gave us these apostles who walked with Him so that they could see Him, so that they could hear Him, so that they could touch Him and say He was real and He was alive and this is what He said and this is what He did as a result of what He said. He died and He rose again and it's all recorded in this book and you can bank on it. You can believe it. You can be willing to die for it. This book is God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is what? God breathed. 
Second Peter chapter 1. Let's just look there. Hold, hold your place in 1 John. Look over it. Uh, back, back, one book in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. God knew that we were going to fight this battle of whether this word would be believed or not. Peter, one of those three in the inner circle, this is what he said about the apostolic witness in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then down in verse 20, we could read all of that. We don't have time. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why we have an assurance of eternal. That's why there is eternal life. God has made himself known through the Son. This book is about his Son. How are we going to know the Son? God has given us this book so that we could know who the Son is and place our faith in the Son of God. Eternal life is possible. A relationship with God is possible. Look with me in verse 5, back in 1 John. So, the assurance of eternal life. It's, it's through Christ. It's recorded in this book. So let's look at this first assurance of eternal life. If you walk in the light, you have assurance of eternal life. Verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. What does it mean for God to be light? Well, he is perfection, absolute perfection. He is holy, absolute holiness. There is no wrong thing, no bad thing, no thing that is not good and holy and right about God. He is light. Now, that's why when we come into the light, we welcome the light because now that we're light, we don't want darkness in our lives. It's painful to have darkness in our lives. And when we sin, that light shines on it. And we say, God, give me more light. Help me with my sin. Or, if we don't know God, we turn our back. And we hate the light. We turn away from the light. And we say, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. It doesn't matter what you say. God is light. And, and in this book, there are pr three primary themes. I, I love outlines. I'm a structure guy. And so when I look at a book in the Bible, I'm on, I'm on an outline. Give me an outline. This is the most unoutlinable book in the whole Bible. <laughs> it's been driving me crazy studying through it. <laughs> I'm kidding, but it's a little bit more circular. Not by way of argument. But he keeps coming back to some of the same arguments. There are themes that are here. There are three primary themes here. There is the theme of light and darkness. It's the moral test, holiness. If you, God is holy and perfect in all that he does. Well, what about you? Where is your life? Are you growing into that kind of holiness? It's a moral test. There's also the love and hate test. We can call it the social test. 
Not only is there holiness, but is there respectfulness for other people? Do you love other people? It's love and hate, the social test. And then it's truth and error, the doctrinal test. So holiness and respectfulness and soundness. Do you really believe the truth about who God is? Now, as we work our way through these final verses here, there are three errors to avoid. Three errors to avoid. We're focused on this theme of light and darkness. It's what he's using right now in this, in this particular part. We'll, we'll keep moving around to those themes. And it's, these themes are said in different ways throughout this book. And we're going we're gonna to grow and be blessed and encouraged and helped as we walk through these themes a number of times. But in this particular section, it does deal with the light. The light and the darkness. So three errors to avoid. And the first error that we're going to see in verse 6 is a separation of confession and conduct. You can't walk in the light and separate your confession in Christ and your conduct outside of Christ. It's incongruent. It's, it's not possible. It's hypocritical. And so look with me in verse 6. We're going to see this statement three times in verses 6 through 10. If we say... But first, in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, the one who is light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are people who are banking on a child's profession of faith when they were very young to get them into heaven, but there's been no fruit in their lives all these years. They've been walking in darkness. There are people that may be here today who are wondering, am I really saved? I know I prayed a prayer. I know I walked and I know I went into that baptistry. But you know, there was never a change in my life. I, I'm still, I'm living like the world. I'm living in darkness. Well, this is, this is the test here. There are some of you who have been doubting your salvation and you've been walking in the light. You've been drawn to the light. You love the light. You hate your sin. And you beg God to, to rid you of all sin. And God's saying, you're in my family. If you hate your sin, you may come back to it from time to time. But if you're begging God and pleading God, God, get that darkness out of my life. That's an assurance of your salvation. Because light and darkness don't mix. Sometimes our traditions get the best of us and we see somebody walk an aisle. We see somebody get baptized and we just assume, man, salvation is there. We, see, we hear somebody even pray a prayer and, and the words of Jesus come to mind. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so here, John is blessing the readers. God is giving grace to his followers to say, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So we, we love God's people because they're in the light too. There's this fellowship that we want to be together. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, that we start longing to bless each other in fellowship because God's done something supernatural in our lives. 
and whatever else happens in our lives and, and we're in the light and every time we sin, that light just shows it to us. The grace of God bringing conviction and bringing uh, hope and help to us. We run to the light and say, God, cleanse me, free me from that. Don't let me do that anymore. That's true faith. That's genuine authenticity. That's a walk with God. You can't separate confession and conduct out. They should be going together. If I say that I'm, I'm in the light, I know God, and I walk in the darkness, my conduct, that's incongruent. That's incongruent. It's wrong. We lie. It's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Notice verse 7. But, or excuse me, verse 8. This is if we say again. You saw it in verse 6. If we say, now in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's another error that we can fall into. We can, we can separate sin and the flesh. You see, sin is when we actually give in and we disobey God. We dishonor Him. The flesh is that desire to sin. And I don't know about you, but I have not lost the desire to sin. It's what we call the flesh, this desire. It's, it's that indwelling sin. It's that which we've been accustomed to. We live in a fallen world and, and there are times that we're so drawn to sin that it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Now, what God has promised is that He will never give us more temptation. He will never allow us to experience more temptation in sin than we can stand up under. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We're all in this together. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. God will never let you be tempted. God doesn't give you temptation, right? James 1. God doesn't give you temptation, but He allows temptation in your life and He'll never let it. He has a threshold, a ceiling on all temptation so that you can never say the devil made me do that. Or, you know, if my husband, if he was just a better man, or my wife, if she just hadn't said that to me, or, you know, if I just had grown up in a little better... I mean, you get it. We make all kind of excuses and we don't want to take responsibility for our sin. But... We all have sin living in us. And we all have the desire. Now, I believe as we grow, that desire lessens and God works in us. But, but sometimes we want to separate sin and the flesh and say, well, when you become a Christian, then you're not going to have to worry about sin anymore. Well, I, I think he's saying if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So, so what do we do when we sin? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I believe at the cross, total forgiveness comes when we receive Christ. But what happens on a day-to-day basis when you come up short, when you sin, when you disobey God, when you've spoken in an angry way, you've gossiped, you've been mean, you've, you've given in to your lust, you've, whatever it is, we, we can go over the long list, and we all know what that's like to feel those 
sinful desires, what are you going to do when you give in that day when you have been mean? You've been standing in line and you know that person at the register could have stopped talking at least five seconds ago. I mean, what are you going to do with your sin? What, I mean, we, we sin. We sin at home. We sin in our church. We sin in our workplace. What are you going to do? Well, God's given us this way to renew our fellowship with him and to restore it because we hate the darkness. And when we sin, we're, in, we're, we're giving in to the darkness. And he said if we confess our sins, that is if we will say the same thing about our sin that God does. That's to confess it. It's not make it, you know, I wouldn't have done this if, or I only did this. It's not as bad as this next guy. I mean, I mean, you should have saw David Tate. I mean, I'm not near what, you, you know, it's that kind of, it's God, this sin is against you and you alone. You hate sin. You, you sent your son to die for sin. And I have sinned against you. I have hurt this person. I have offended you. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me not do that again. If we confess, we say the same thing. We feel the same thing God feels. That light has shone and we're so grateful to God. God, thank you for that light to point out the darkness and my sin. And God, I don't want to sin and offend you. You've been so good to me. If we confess our sins, notice what God is like. He's faithful and just. Not... Not because we deserve it, because of what His Son has done for us. The price has been paid and the Advocate puts paid in full on that sin and we're restored. We're forgiven. We're brought back into fellowship. Now we can't lose our relationship, but we can lose our fellowship with God. And and it's a terrible place to be out of fellowship. And I think that's oftentimes we start losing the assurance of our salvation, not that we've lost our salvation, but we lose the assurance of it because the enemy comes in and he begins to throw all these lies at us. It's like a child when a child does something the parents said don't do and they hide it. And they come over and that child is asked, did you do this? And so that child, what's the first reaction of the child? Not me. Must have been my brother or my sister over here. But we're, you know, we we don't want to take ownership. We don't want to confess it because we may get in trouble with that. Let me tell all our kids something. It's always best to tell the truth the very first time. All of you students, I know you think you're probably not going to be breathing the next day if your parents ever find out. It's always better when you mess up to go home and say, Mom, Dad, I need you to know something. I can promise you this. They're going to love you. But I can tell you it's not going to be nearly as bad if you go ahead and confess it. And the same with all of us. We look at our students and our kids and say, Duh, why can't they get that? And, and yet we sin and we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father and we mess around with it. We, uh, God, you know, maybe I did it because of this. And, you know, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. And instead of just confessing, God, 
Look what I've done. I know you hate sin. And I've offended you. I am sorry. I love this gracious God. He's provided a way of forgiveness even when we sin. What a great verse. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He will no longer hold it against us. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness is in marriage. When you forgive one another for a hard word or for whatever it is, it's, it's, it's saying, I'm not going to hold this against you any longer. And God says, I'm not going to hold it against you any longer. I'm going to take it as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It feels pretty good to get cleaned up, doesn't it? Man, I can go out and run and get all sweaty and, or I can work in the yard and get all dirty and that, that shower just feels so good. And that's how God wants us to be as His kids when we mess up. He wants to Turn that hose on. And, and the blood of Christ is that cleansing agent. It perfectly cleans. It heals even. It's a balm. The balm of Gilead. Give you that third error that we have to be careful of. We don't want to separate our confession from our conduct. We don't want to separate sin and the flesh. But we also don't want to separate Nature and nurture, verse 10. If we say, just like verse 6, just like verse 8, now verse 10. If we say, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So sometimes, is someone a sinner from birth or do they just learn how to sin? And it's both. We're sinners at birth and we learn how to sin. We're sinners that were in sin and my mother conceived me. People are not basically good. That's one of the myths. It's one of the anti-biblical statements that some uh, Freudian psychology way of thinking is. But that idea, people are basically good. No, people are basically sinners. And the Bible is very clear about that. It's a biblical worldview. We need to be born again. When we're born, we're born sinners. When we're born again, God saves us from our sin and he helps us now to grow and to learn to be obedient children. And so don't separate the two. They're both true. We're born sinners and and even after we're saved, we're born again sinners because it's natural and it's learned and those desires don't leave us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This first error somehow says, well, you can continue in your sin and it doesn't matter. Well, that's not true. The second error, you can stop your sin and you don't have to sin on earth any longer. Well, that's not true. And the third error is that, well, you never sin to begin with. We're all okay. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a lie. I don't need to be saved. Well, yes, you do. Let me give you another quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. Finally, do not forget that assurance is a thing which may be lost for a season, even by the brightest Christians, unless they take care. 
You see, when you're really saved, God begins to discipline you. You can't, you can't live in your sin because you're in the light. And not only do you know the light, but you begin to walk in the light and you become light. Isn't that neat what God does? He shows you the light. God is light. He begins to grow you in walking in the light and you become light to the world. You become a reflection of Christ in your own life. And when you are in sin, you're not reflecting. You're in disobedience. And God won't let you go. So what does he do? He spanks you. Parents who love their kids when they're little, not when they're adults. When they're little, they spank them. I love you too much to let you act like that. God says, I love you too much. You're my child. And part of that discipline, I think, is that guilt. It's that lack of assurance. It's God begins to work in us to bring us to repentance. So I would say to you, you need Jesus this morning. I need Jesus. Before before being saved, you need Jesus. After you're saved, you need Jesus. During this time of being saved, you need Jesus. And the only hope we have is to keep coming back to the gospel. What, what is it to be saved? God created a perfect world. Sin entered in. And because of that, death and sin entered into our world and passed upon all people. Our only hope is that God said that he would send someone who would save us from our sin. Jesus, God himself, God the Son, came and took on human flesh, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved, took our punishment, and rose from the dead. Those who place their faith in Jesus, all that is true about him, those who place their faith in Jesus, they are born again. They become his followers. They become his children. They become his disciples. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, spend eternity in hell, but have eternal life. God wants you today to have eternal life. Do you have it? Do you know Christ? Some of you have been wrestling with your salvation. I hope you'll be here each week, not only in the morning, but in the evening with discussion groups, women's and men's discussion groups, to wrestle through this letter. But this morning, God may be speaking specifically to you about the assurance of your salvation. Do you know Christ? Do you know the light of the world? Are you walking in the light? Are you becoming light? Is God at work in your life? This is one of those evidences of whether or not you're in the faith. If you're not walking in the light, God's knocking on your heart's door this morning and he wants you to open up that door and let him in. Do you have eternal life? Some of you know you don't. You based it on a baptism. You based it on a prayer. And you know there's never been a change in your life. And 
Man, this, this altar is going to be open this morning. Maybe, it's, maybe the altar is open for you to recommit your life to Christ. You know you're saved and you, you know you've grown, but you just want to recommit your life. Maybe it's because you've never really been saved. You want, to, you want to just come and pray and ask God to come into your life and to ask for His forgiveness and to confess Him as Lord. And Maybe there are people in your life that you know are not saved or you're not sure if they're saved and you just want to pray for them today. This altar is open and we would invite you to come. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we understand none of us deserves to be in your family. None of us. All of us are are in the same category. We've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And thank you for the gift of eternal life that you give. I pray that for those who are here with us this morning that do not have eternal life, that today they would confess Jesus as Lord. They would place their faith in Jesus as their Lord. I pray for others who've been struggling with doubt and maybe today you've given them some reassurance. I pray that they would, they would just be overwhelmed with humility and gratitude for this free gift. And God, you know all of us have people in our lives that we're not sure if they're saved or not. As a matter of fact, some of them we know are not saved. And Give us a burden, a greater burden to see more people come into your family. In Jesus' name we pray.